0: You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit illinilife.org. Good morning, it's, it's wonderful to see you. Um, I'm well aware that the Illini game starts in just under 30 minutes, uh, and so I'm just going to dive right in, if you're all right with that, this morning. Let's do it. Uh, We're in the final week today of a five-week series on the servant songs in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, a a set of poetic prophecies uh, about a, a servant of God figure that Christians believe clearly points to the life and death of Jesus, our Savior, And if you've been following along with this series, you may have noticed that that as time goes on, the servant songs get progressively more graphic. In the first song, right, the servant bursts onto the scene uh, to bring justice, to make all things right. And then the second song extends that mission to the whole world. But we also get a hint in that second song that this mission won't be easy. The servant speaks of discouragement, He says his work feels in vain sometimes. Then the third song, which which David Ross covered last week, gets even darker. The servant talks about being spit on, mocked, having his beard pulled out, but he remains obedient to the mission. And as David said really well, the servant resolves a tension that we often see between power and humility, between courage and suffering in his resolve to obey. But at this point, it's becoming clear. However the servant brings justice, it will not be easy. Not physically, not emotionally, not spiritually. So we're at the end of the series. And so far, none of these songs has answered a major question. How does the servant bring justice? We know the way he'll go about it, but but how does he actually do it? The question has urgency for Isaiah's readers. For one thing, Isaiah's audience has been the most unjust people of all. They've done so many things that need to be set right. And Isaiah's been making the point for 40 plus chapters that the Jewish people have broken the covenant commitments they've made with God through their idolatry and their gross mistreatment of other people. Their sin has fractured their society and their individual selves and has broken their relationship to God. And the law was clear. Breach of the covenant had consequences. One of those consequences, Isaiah prophesied, was that the Jewish people would be taken captive to Babylon. How could the servant bring justice when God's own people were so unjust? And just to make it more confusing... Woven in counterpoint to this message of judgment, Isaiah announces that God is planning a massive restoration. Isaiah says things like, God's taken the cup of wrath out of Judah's hands, and they'll never taste it again. Isaiah imagines Judah returning from exile with God going before and behind them in a new exodus. He imagines wildernesses turning into oases and highways springing up in the desert to bring God's people home. And Isaiah speaks repeatedly of this image of the arm of the Lord. It's the picture of God being present in power to save his people. Sometimes Isaiah sets these prophecies of judgment and hope right next to each other. It's whiplash. And surely, some of his listeners thought, how can these things be? How can there be restoration if we have failed so badly? And there's no sign that we're going to change. And justice demands a response. It was a compelling question. How could the servant bring justice into this? And so today we come to the final servant song, where the threads come together to tell us how God plans to set things right through his servant. And so today, we'll read the climactic servant song in Isaiah 52 and 53, stanza by stanza, to see what it says about how justice can be done for Israel and for us. And along the way, we'll remember how this passage is fulfilled in the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. And we'll see some startling parallels with the crucifixion story as it's reported in the Gospels. And as we see how God steps in to make things right when all seems lost my prayer is that we'll see the weight of sin all the ways it destroys and disfigures and the weight of God's answer for it in Jesus two realities that the church focuses on in the liturgical season of Lent that we're in so we'll start with the first stanza Shockingly. Uh, It starts in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, and I'll give you a second to turn to it, although it will also be on the slides. Isaiah 52, 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Just as many were appalled at you, my people. So his appearance was marred beyond that of a man and his form beyond the sons of mankind. So he will sprinkle, or that word might also mean startle, many nations. Kings will shut their mouths on account of him, for what they had not been told, they will see. And what they had not heard, they will understand." We start right away with a paradox. Isaiah goes hard. The servant is successful with this triple description of how esteemed he is. But in almost the same breath, Isaiah tells us that he's so appalling that he barely looks like a human. Previous servant songs alluded to suffering, but apparently that suffering has been so graphic that the servant is battered beyond recognition. And that suffering will capture the attention of the world and render the powerful speechless. How is this success? It's a paradox that the rest of the song will work to resolve for us. So let's keep going and read the next stanza Isaiah 53, verse 1 Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we would look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. He was despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain and familiar with sickness. And like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we had no regard for him. So the first thing i want to point out is that that we have a we speaking here isaiah says who has believed our report isaiah is clearly one of those voices but it's not quite clear yet who the other people are and that's something that we'll table and come back to later just for now remember this is a we speaking and this group is talking about the arm of the lord I mentioned this a couple of minutes ago, but throughout this section of Isaiah, the arm of the Lord refers to God being personally present in power on behalf of his people. It's a promising start, but the way that the arm is revealed is, is startling. Verse 2 says that, that the arm, that's the servant, he's a tender plant. He's, he's fragile. He comes from un. Promising origins, that's what the dry ground means. Not only that, but he's not much to look at. If he's going to startle kings, it's not because he looks like one. All the things that we expect in our leaders, pleasing appearance, majestic form, charisma, not here. In fact, this tender plant sounds more like the bent reed in the first servant song, if you remember that. Isaiah said in chapter 42 that the servant would be so gentle in his mission to bring justice that he wouldn't even snap the most fragile twig. Now Isaiah tells us that the arm of the Lord appears like that fragile twig. He identifies with the lowest of the low. And that's good news for us today. He doesn't just help bent reeds. He knows what it's like to be one. And that's still a comfort today. So Isaiah says the servant is fragile. But verse 3 develops this image further. He's he's not just unimpressive. The servant is actively rejected by people. Isaiah tells us he's despised. And we might think that's a big deal. But I don't know if we realize just how much ancient Near Eastern culture was built on the concept of honor and how other people thought of you. Being despised was one of the worst fates when everything depended on public opinion. So the servant deeply knows that kind of shame, but he also knows the pains of our life. It says our sorrows and our sicknesses wrecked our world and our lives. And this is the servant who's going to prosper. And this, we know, is Jesus, right? Marked by social shame and sorrow in his death. Abandoned by his closest followers, unimpressive, fragile, and well acquainted with our pain. What a litany. The next stanza will give us more information about why the servant is so familiar with our pain. And it begins to unravel for us the mystery of how justice could come through something like this. So so we'll pick up again in in verse 4. However, it was our sicknesses that he himself bore and our pains that he carried. Yet we ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted, struck down by God, and humiliated. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed all of us like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his own way but the lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him the last stanza told us that he knew sickness and pain but but verse four now tells us something more those pains were the pains of isaiah's listeners and and the servant takes them willingly Those verbs bore and carried in verse 4 have the idea of lifting a burden off someone else and taking it on one's own shoulders. A servant is choosing to experience the pains of the people. One commentator says that sickness and pain covers all of the ways that, that our lives are marred by sin. right? Emotionally, physically, spiritually, he feels it all. And Isaiah says that onlookers think that suffering is the servant's fault. That it's God's retribution. But Isaiah doubles down on a truth even more shocking. The servant is suffering for the covenant offenses of the people that Isaiah has already detailed in chapter after chapter. And verse 5 tells us this in graphic terms, right? In the phrase, pierced for our offenses, maybe you hear the echo of the crucifixion where Jesus is nailed to a cross. But that word crushed in the next line, that's the image of being trampled to death. It's agonizing, it's personal. And Isaiah states over and over that it's, it's for their sins. But Isaiah also says that this suffering will somehow bring about their well-being. Something about it is enough to bridge the gap from those prophecies of judgment to the prophecies of restoration and flourishing. And that restoration will be total the wording here makes it clear that everywhere that sin disfigures this suffering will restore the word well-being in verse 5 is a form of the hebrew word shalom which refers to wholeness on a total level individual communal between people and god and the word for healed here again it's healing in a total sense Not just forgiveness, but rebuilding fractured people. The servant suffering won't just sweep away their covenant breaking and pretend it didn't exist. It will really make all things right. Because that's what it means to bring justice. It doesn't just forgive, it restores. I think we know in this moment that justice demands more than a kind of cheap forgiveness that sweeps something under the rug. To truly set things right, something has to be done. Sometimes people ask why Jesus had to suffer to put things right. Why couldn't God do something a little less painful? And I'll admit that, that it's a mystery. And the more you try to read and study it, the more mysterious and deep it can feel but I think one, one reason that we can understand in this moment is that sin exacts a cost, and putting things right will always require payment. And this is especially apparent to us when we see all the ways that sin rips apart, not just the fabric of ourselves, but the relationships and systems we live in. Let me give a kind of lighthearted example of what I mean. On my third date with my now fiancé, um, I rear-ended his car. We, we don't have to go into the details, but it was totally my fault. You're welcome, Andy. Uh, and, and after it happened, we stood by the side of the road, next to our broken cars in the middle of the pouring rain, and he held an umbrella over my head while I called insurance, and, and he forgave me. Whew. And shockingly, he still wanted a relationship with me. Uh, but both our cars were still broken. And, and I drove my busted car for maybe a month after that before I finally took it into a mechanic. Hopefully you can see an image of it. Uh, it. It just didn't quite work right. It was a little scary every time I took it on the road. I actually covered the front with duct tape to keep things from flying in on the highway. I'm not sure it worked. I was forgiven. <laughs> but I still needed a mechanic to do something to my car for things to be restored, to be made right. My accident still had a cost and somebody had to pay for those repairs. It's me right now in my insurance premiums. <laughs> Forgiveness is good, but the brokenness our sin causes remains. And we can ask why Jesus had to die if we try to cherry pick the sins that feel convenient or small to us. But if we're honest, our sin, our self-reliance like like sheep wandering away, our disregard of God's good ways, it, it always destroys. It breaks us. It breaks our relationship to everything around us. It entwines its way into entire systems built on selfish actions that can bear poisonous for generations later. And it takes action to set those things right. Forgiveness without justice is incomplete. You know where I think we really see this today? I think we see it in the protests that have convulsed this country because of incidents of racial injustice, like the death of George Floyd. Almost a year ago, George Floyd died at the hands of a police officer during an arrest for for buying cigarettes with a counterfeit $20 bill. Camera footage showed the officer putting his knee on Floyd's neck for almost nine minutes. And since that footage was released, right, people have acted. They have marched, they have demonstrated, they have started grassroots movements, they have advocated for policies that protect and honor black lives. Why are people doing all these things? Because what happened to Floyd and to so many others is wrong. And it is exposed to many of us the ways that that sin leads to a world of hurt. And justice requires action. Even if we disagree on how, we know that something has to be done to set things right. And right now, the officer who, who carries primary responsibility for Floyd's death is on trial for murder. Because sin exacts a cost. And the consequences must acknowledge that cost. And this is one reason why Jesus had to take our infirmities and pain in these verses. Because setting things right requires action that acknowledges that cost of sin. And so Isaiah says, God lays on the servant the wrongdoing of us all in an act that declares just how devastating it is, but somehow enables us to be healed, made whole in every way that sin has touched us. I know I've gone off a bit on a tangent here, but but let's come back to look at the next stanza of this song in verses seven through nine. This stanza returns to describing how the servant brings justice, but extends that suffering to its ultimate point in death. Verse seven, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the wrongdoing of my people to whom the blow was due? And his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. If you're familiar with the crucifixion accounts in the Gospels, your brain was probably lighting up with all the parallels in this stanza. Uh, Verse 7 says that the servant is silent while suffering, despite the gross injustice he experiences. And the Gospels report to us that Jesus is also largely silent when he's brought to trial unjustly and false accusations are hurled at him. Isaiah compares this silent acceptance to the silence of sheep. His listeners knew that sheep are so uncomprehending that they follow blindly to their fate, whether it's just a shearing or the loss of their life. But Isaiah brings this up here for contrast, right? Unlike dumb sheep, the servant knows exactly what he's doing, and he does it anyway without a word of protest. And that's important for us to remember. Jesus was not an unwilling victim of some angry divine plot. He chose this plan to suffer to make people whole. So he's silent. But then verse 8 says he was cut off from the land of the living. Now, cut off is an expression for being killed. And... and We see from the other side of the crucifixion, but Isaiah's listeners would be shocked at the idea that God's servant would die. And this may be one reason why this passage was interpreted in a lot of different ways before Jesus. But Isaiah is clear here that the servant's atonement will involve death, the ultimate way that sin exacts a cost. And if anyone had any doubt that the servant was dying, they wanted to say it's metaphorical, verse 9 talks about his grave. So, there. And it feels weird here. What does it mean that he's buried with a rich man? Like, like weird detail, Isaiah. But we know from the Gospels that Jesus was buried in a tomb that belonged to a member of the Jewish religious elite, a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And so hundreds of years before that happens, Isaiah tells us with this level of specificity that he will be buried with a rich man's grave. So so in this last stanza now, we've seen Jesus' sham trial, his silence before his accusers, his death, and even specifics about his burial. We've come now to the final stanza, which comments on the significance of these events. Starting in verse 10, it says, but the Lord desired to crush him, causing him grief. If he renders himself as a guilt offering, He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, the servant will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. For he will bear their wrongdoings. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great And he will divide the plunder with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was counted with wrongdoers. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the wrongdoers. We start this last stanza with a bombshell. The servant's shameful, degrading, unjust death was not a mistake, but actually desired by God. And that's important because sometimes the cross is treated as a tragic accident that God somehow managed to bring good out of. But the Father planned this the whole time. This was always the way. And the next statement in verse 10 helps us understand why this death was deliberate. Because it tells us the servant dies as a guilt offering. It's a willed sacrifice And this sentence perhaps most clearly puts together the pieces of why suffering and death are necessary to put things right. But to understand that, it kind of helps to know a little bit about the guilt offering. So let's go there. Uh, The guilt offering is described in Leviticus chapters 5 and 6. It made restitution for a wrong against God or someone else by sacrificing a ram, and then in most cases paying back the wronged person or the priest uh, the amount of the offense, and then 20% extra. It was an offering that made reparations. The guilt offering emphasized that it wasn't enough for an offender just to seek forgiveness. Restitution had to be made for the damage they had done. Uh, one commentator explains that by making a payment through the guilt offering, quote, offenders willingly take on a share of the harm themselves, thereby sharing in the distress they caused the victim, end quote. That's what Jesus' death does, is a guilt offering. It's making restitution for a wrong. He's the one who willingly takes on the harm and distress that our sin causes, just like someone would in the guilt offering. But in this case, he's not making restitution as the offender, but as the only party who can afford the reparations. Friends, this is what the servant has to do to bring justice. That's the answer to the question for today. The servant brings justice by suffering as a guilt offering. God fully wills it, and the servant fully wills it. He experiences the full pain of Israel's covenant breaking and the devastation it causes. He makes restitution, and he enables things to be set right. And he does it for us, too. And on that phrase, the rest of the servant's song hinges. The story changes from here. After announcing the meaning of his suffering and death, Isaiah rushes forward into the good things that will come from it. And now we hear God's voice speaking. First, the song tells us that the servant's death will not be final. He says he will prolong his days, and then he will see the light of life. He's talking about the resurrection. And the idea of resurrection would have been wild to Isaiah's audience. Especially when you know that that ancient Near Eastern readers had only a dim idea of an afterlife, let alone a bodily resurrection. So the servant will live. But his life will also be a triumphant one. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. What a reversal from someone who was treated to the most dehumanizing death the ancient world could devise. And Isaiah says that he'll see his offspring in verse 11. Who are those? We get a clue further down when Isaiah says that by his knowledge, uh, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. The guilt offering made by the son will justify a multitude of people. That's the offspring. The relationship to God is now changed. And that word justify can sound kind of stuffy and legal, but another way to say it is is rectify or really make right because justice isn't just making things right it's making people right and it's those people who have been made whole that isaiah refers to at the beginning of the song when he said who has believed our report At least one commentator argues that these offspring are the we that Isaiah has been talking about all along. You know, the we who were totally unimpressed by the servant's appearance, who treated him with contempt and and assumed God was punishing him for for his own fault. You know, the, the we whose wrongdoings the servant gently took up and carried on his own shoulders. The servant's offspring are our enemies and covenant breakers whose life has been turned upside down and put back together because of his suffering for them. Dear friends and followers of Jesus, we are his offspring too. And because of what Jesus' death has set right, he rejoices to see us in his lineage. And so, in the final verse, Isaiah can sum up the servant's triumph and suffering But now we can see how those two things are connected, right? He receives the spoil of the powers of this world because he died to make satisfaction for our sin. He sits in triumph because he sat under the full weight of all that our evil does to destroy us, and he overcame. And that's where I want to focus as we end. The servant overcame. Jesus overcame. The last thing I want to do today is give you commands to follow. Although there are New Testament writers who tease out implications of how we can imitate Jesus' suffering, no, no, the point today is to receive in full force what the servant does for Israel and for us. And as I've been meditating on these verses and the suffering servant this week, two things have really hit home for me. First, this song so clearly shows the weight of sin. The reason Jesus dies in such a graphic way is because our sin, even the little acts of self-will that we justify like wandering sheep, produces a rift that is both cosmic and personal. And my goal in saying that isn't to induce self-pity or self-flagellating guilt over what Jesus has forgiven, but I hope it's sobering. Sin kills. Sin exacts a cost. But if the song tells us that sin destroys, it tells us even more clearly that the servant is more than a match for it. By suffering as a guilt offering on the cross, Jesus entered into the worst things that sin can bring. He experienced the injustice of a sham trial and a summary execution. He experienced shame and social death in a culture where others opinion of you was everything and he experienced the annihilation of death but it was in that very experience of suffering and death that he began to make things right to restore us to god to give victory over the ways that our sin takes us captive to free us from the forces of evil to bring healing and, and the promise one day of full restoration, he showed proof of that victory at the cross when he rose from the dead three days later, what we celebrate on Easter. And so, as we close today, I encourage you: see the weight of sin, but see the weight, of the satisfaction. If you're struggling with the ways that sin has broken our world and you're crying out for justice, know that the pledge of final justice began when the servant took on that brokenness himself. If you're discouraged by the ways that sin feels alive and flourishing in your own heart today, know that the servant's death is enough for you too, that he's still here to give you power as one of his offspring today, that he's setting you right. And as we move now into a time of singing in response, I pray that this this weight of satisfaction, the wonder of the cross would move you to fresh worship of our Lord. Let's pray.